You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. On today's show, I'm super excited to bring you this conversation with Urian Timmer. Urian is the director of global macro investing at Fidelity. We cover so much ground in this conversation to include his expectations for the fixed income and equity markets going into this year. Why and how Fidelity has been able to be so progressive and early to Bitcoin when everyone else on Wall Street has taken so much time to figure it out. We talk about a lot of his incredible charts and much, much more. So without further delay, here's my chat with the brilliant Urian Timmer. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Like we said in the intro, I'm here with Urian Timmer. Urian, I've been a fanboy. I've been kind of stalking your Twitter profile and your charts that you're posting on here are just fantastic. And you're posting so many of them that have just added tremendous value to me. And I really try to, as an investor, I'm constantly trying to understand where I'm at in the market cycle. And you have provided that in spades. I guess this is my first question for you. So whenever I've heard interviews with people like Stan Druckenmiller and some of the greats in investing, Stan talks about how he had a person very early on, I think he was you know, right out of college, and the mentor said, watch the Fed, watch what they do and watch them very closely, and then develop your smaller micro thesis off of that. I'm curious for you, having been in the investing space for decades, and extremely experienced and in, in, in charge of macro at Fidelity. Did you have a mentor like that? And if you did, what is some of the things, maybe advice-wise, that just shaped you and influenced you to become the investor that you are today? Thank you very much for, for having me on. I would say my mentor was Mr. Johnson, uh, the then chairman of Fidelity. We call him Ned. But you know, he personally hired me at Fidelity 20 seven years ago, and I was hired there to work in the chart room. So I was hired as a technical analyst, which is why I guess I'm such a visual person. But uh, Mr. Johnson was and is a very visual person as well. And so you know, I worked in the chart room, which of course were you know, floor to ceiling, 30-foot long charts. He taught me a lot of what I know and you know he was a really valuable mentor you know he would he would come over you know and it's it's kind of funny but he would be on his way to some board meeting and he would sneak into the chart room and grab me and we you know spend a couple of hours there and then his assistants would be looking for us like Mr. Johnson you need to come to the meeting but his passion you know what what was charts and and so i learned a, a lot uh, a lot from him how the markets fit together he would just draw on the chart physically going back to the 60s and explain the 1968 speculative blow off. And, and I, you know, I use that today you know, because we have the meme stocks and there are a lot of similarities. And that period was not well documented. And so the kind of, you know, the oral history um, was extremely valuable. What would you say some of the critical variables were that he would look at? Was it currency and interest rates that he would be particularly paying attention to as the bigger, broader waves in the market to kind of understand how everything would else, everything else would be uh, getting bumped around or cue us into maybe some of the, the bigger, broader brushstrokes? 
he would look a lot at the internals of the market. So, you know, are, are small caps confirming large caps or what, what are the breadth numbers? Tops and bottoms, what, do you see the, the greed and fear show up in the markets? Did you see the capitulation watching the, the money flow? And obviously, all the other elements that, that, you just, that you just described you know, weave into that. Obviously, my background is actually a bond person because before Fidelity, I worked in New York for a Dutch bank um, running a bond desk for them. We, we would execute back then, they were euro bonds uh, for you know, kind of the Belgian dentist. You know, kind of, it was, maybe you're, you're too young to, to, to remember that, but that was like a whole thing in the 80s and, and 90s. And and that was a very valuable learning experience because if you want to understand the stock market, you really need to understand interest rates. And obviously, the Fed plays a very valuable or very important role in that. But interest rates is probably the backbone. It's probably the most important thing you can know when you're trying to understand the stock market because that interest rate goes right into the discounted cash flow model. And it's a very big variable. You know, most people think about earnings, and obviously, earnings ultimately will, will drive the market. But the interest rate side of it is, is a very valuable component as well. You often hear, especially with younger investors, that back in the 80s, we had the 10 year treasury at 16%. But what's often missed or not put with that is what the inflation rate was, right? So, you were dealing with a hundred basis or two hundred basis point spread back then, even though the nominal yield was call it sixteen percent. Today, when we're looking at these spreads right now, it's astronomical. We're dealing with a with a ten year around two percent and inflation prints of seven percent for a negative five hundred basis point spread. Which you tell me, you you lived this, but when I'm looking at that, I'm saying that's crazy, especially when you're comparing it to any type of historical context for anybody alive right now. This spread seems to be a somewhat eyes popping out of the head kind of moment. How are you interpreting it? You're referring to real rates, uh, which is really an, an extremely important driver. And historically, generally speaking, real rates are positive uh, to varying degrees. And that's probably how it should be. But you do have periods where real rates have been negative. And you know, I, one of my many, many charts that I've created, I look at kind of the length and stability of a business cycle going back to the 1800s. And what I found is that the longer the cycle lasts and the more stable it is, those tend to have modestly positive real rates. And that's very important because if real rates are too positive, it kind of chokes the economy. But if they're too negative, it can create basically misallocation of capital or other instabilities in the markets. And, and you know, we look at today, if you look at the CPI, obviously at 7%, bond yield is at 1.8, real rates are minus 500, as you pointed out. The TIPS market tells a little bit of a different story. And we can talk about whether the TIPS market is manipulated by the Fed, which owns 29% of it. But the market's expectation of inflation is that it's not going to stay at seven, but it's going to moderate. And that's probably, I think, um, a reasonable outlook just because of, of base effects. But even then, the five-year, five-year forward tips break even is 2.1, and the 10-year yield is 1.8 or so. So you still have negative real rates. And a year ago, they were a lot more negative. They were about minus 100. And you have to go back really to, obviously, briefly, the early 80s. That was a, a really crazy time with, with the, the Paul Volcker uh, Fed you know, really slamming the brakes on inflation. But those were very short episodes. But to look back in history, 
for a more sustained period of negative view rates, you have to go back to the 1940s. And there are definitely some parallels with the World War II 1940s period of financial repression and today's climate, uh, right? So in 1942, the US joined uh, or mobilized to join World War II. The Fed was not yet independent at that time. That happened in 1951. That was the Treasury Fed Accord. So the Fed was basically tasked by the Treasury to monetize the debt. And the debt to GDP went from about 35% to 116% in the span of you know, three, four years. So a very, very rapid increase in debt. And the Fed basically capped short yields and it capped long yields. The T-bill at three eights, I think, and the 10-year the or the long bond at two and a half percent. And inflation ran at five, six percent, and in some years, a lot higher than that. And the Fed to be able to protect that yield cap basically increased or grew its balance sheet tenfold from 1942 to 1946. So that was a, a very significant period of financial repression. If you were a bond investor back then, you would have gotten two and a quarter percent CAGR, a compound annual growth rate from 1942 to 1951, which is when the Fed gained independence. And you would have earned about 300 basis points of negative real return. Fast forward to today, very similar story, although there might be a fork in the road now with the Fed at least planning on raising rates by about 200 basis points, which the Fed raised rates at one point during the 40s, but it was only by, I think, 50 basis points from one to one and a half percent. So maybe we have a fork in the road now, but you have to go back to the 40s to find a period where you have this rapid increase in debt because of the pandemic, of course. And then the Fed not explicitly monetizing the debt, but certainly being on the bid side of all those treasuries be, being issued. So, I mean, they were effectively implementing yield curve control. They yep. weren't referring to it as that. When we look at where we're at right now, you know, they're saying they're going to raise rates. I suspect that maybe in March they will, but I think we're going to get to yield curve control pretty quickly here in the coming two to three years. I'm curious if you would agree with that. And then what would that look like if you do agree with that? Certainly the main conundrum in the bond market right now is that yields still are so low, right? So the Fed is removing itself uh, fairly quickly now via first the taper, now the turbo taper, that will be done in March. And then presumably they will start hiking rates in March um, at a pretty fast clip until until they get to probably around 2%. At least that's what the market is saying via the Fed Funds futures curve or the euro dollar curve. They're saying that the, that the terminal point for this Fed cycle will be around two. The Fed's dot plot has the endpoint closer to two and a half, but I mean, it's not a, a, a huge difference. But you know, the question is, at this point, the long end of the bond market remains very well controlled. The question is, you know, why is that? Is that demographics? Is that baby boomers? always solving for income. And, and you can kind of you know, connect the dots all the way into the stock market uh, for that as well when you look at valuations. Maybe it's just the, the fact that the economy has become so financialized that the economy is just highly levered to low rates, right? And already the kind of the average mortgage rate is now above 3%, about 3.5%. So there's been a fairly quick increase in, in that. So maybe the market just recognizes that long yields can only go so high before it starts to essentially slow down the economy. And that will get us to kind of the inversion of the yield curve quicker. 
And so maybe the Fed does not even need to do yield curve control. But I would say, you know, if, if the 10-year really shot up well beyond 2%, and my fair value, if you will, is around two, two and a quarter. So I don't think long yields would go much higher than that anyway. But, you know, let's say that the 10-year goes to 3%. At that point, I could see the Fed maybe getting into a more explicit form of, uh, of financial repression, which would be through yield curve control, presumably. So uh, I could see it, but maybe the markets are just doing all the heavy lifting for the Fed and the Fed won't even have to go there. But it's interesting, you know, I've studied the, the Japanese cycle um, quite a bit. The US around 10 to 15 years behind Japan in terms of the overall demographic trend. We're not going to end up as bad as, as they are in terms of you know, the outright shrinkage of the population. But demographically, you know, the age dependency ratio, growth in the labor force, all heading in the same direction. And you know, as you know, in Japan, yields are around zero. The Bank of Japan's balance sheet is, a, I think, 128% of GDP. So the Fed is only at 36%. So like the Fed is, still has a long way to go to get to the Japan levels. But the Bank of Japan owns half the debt stock in Japan, and it's buying half the flow. And so it's not maybe explicit yield curve control, but the Bank of Japan is a very large player. And it just basically has tamed the bond market into submission. The volatility of the long JGB, the Japanese government bond, is three, whereas the volatility, the annualized volatility of the US long bond is 11. So there is no yield, there's no volatility. There are days where the JGB market doesn't even trade. The Bank of Japan is really the only player there. And so it wouldn't shock me at all if five to 10 years from now, the US is in the same boat and whether the Fed has to do it explicitly or whether market forces will do it for them, we'll have to see. When we look at the current cycle that, that we're talking about right now, the trends when you're looking at the yield curve inversion kind of suggest that maybe around the summer time frame into the fall is when that inversion might happen. Is that the timeline that you're kind of looking at, or do you find that too hard to even kind of forecast? When I look at the, the curve, and obviously the three-month to 10-year remains very steep because the Fed has not begun lifting rates yet, and the long end is pretty stable at around 1.8, 1.9 or so. But the twos to tens curve obviously is flattening pretty dramatically. I think it's around 60 basis points. And it's actually interesting that the two-year node is still as low as it is. It's just a little bit above 1%, even though the Fed funds curve is pricing in about 200 basis points of hikes over the next two years. So you would think the two-year node would yeah. fully reflect that, but, yeah. but it, it doesn't for, for some reason. And maybe the bond market just assumes that the Fed will not be able to do all the 200 basis points. But the twos to tens um, is around 60 and, and flattening fairly quickly. And so at some point, if the market perceives that the Fed is not going to stop at, let's say, four or five hikes and not even at eight hikes, but maybe go to nine, 10, or 11, which is kind of what we had in 2018, where the market was completely chill for two years while the Fed was hiking rates very, very consistently. And then the Fed was perceived to go just a bridge too far, and then the market fell. It had a pretty sharp correction of 20%, which was very short-lived, and it caused the, the Fed to pivot. But still, uh, maybe there's an element in the market that thinks that the Fed is just talking very hawkishly and letting the markets do their work for them, but that they don't actually have to see it through all the way to the end. And I think that's a very important open question. 
because right now financial conditions you know, are tightening, but they remain quite loose. The yield curve is flattening, but it remains positive. My expectation is that the headline inflation numbers will moderate, and I think it's just the math of the base effects will likely make that happen. But if inflation moderates not back to 2% where it has been over the past decade, but to 3 or 4%, and that causes the Fed to then say, you know, we're not going to stop at 2, we're going to go to 3. Because if you look at you know, the natural rate, R star, which is a theoretical rate that it's not a market rate, but it's a theoretical construct on the basis of labor force growth, productivity, there's some kind of uh, risk premium in there as well. It's, it's actually fairly easy to retrofit the Fed's natural rate you know, number through those three variables. But if the natural rate is somewhere around half a percent, and that's a real rate, and inflation moderates to, let's say, three and a half percent, and the Fed goes to two percent, guess what? That still leaves the Fed well below neutral, and it will leave the real Fed funds rate well below zero. So I think if that actually happens that way, that's probably going to mean a soft landing for, for the markets and for the economy. But if the Fed Need feels the need to move the goalpost yet again a year from now or what have you because inflation is not coming back down. Then that's a whole different ballgame, um, and then the Fed will have a lot more wood to chop. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready Rav Four. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, A self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. 
With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. In this chart that you're talking about, I know that you uh, recently posted this in the in the past day that you're talking about. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes for people that are that are wanting to see that. You were a person that, in my opinion, was truly ringing the bell at the top of this market cycle, assuming everything keeps unfolding in this direction that it appears that it, that it is. Back in November, December, you were making posts, and I'm just going to read two of these posts from... Uh, here's one from the 7th of December. You said, earnings growth is slowing. The Fed wants the taper. So what's next? We are bound to get more choppiness. The same thing happened in 2018, 2016. You, and you say... Like the seasons, it's a natural part of the market cycle. On 2 December, you said, earnings have done all the heavy lifting for more than a year now. The combination of of slowing but positive earnings growth and a sideways down PE multiple suggests a flattening out of the bull market slope. I remember looking at these posts, and, and these were just two examples. You had a lot of examples with a lot of charts. And I was like, hey, Urian's like ringing the bell here. And I don't know that everyone's paying attention, but so far, I mean, you have nailed this. If you could just, and I, I know people hate this question, but if you could just say two or three or four things that for you are really important indicators to kind of pay attention to that you think, hey, this thing's starting to run out of steam. I know you mentioned the, the two in, in 10 on the fixed income side, which I think is a really important chart, but what are those things that, that you're paying attention to to be able to make such a bold call like this? So, generally speaking, there are three pillars to a bull market, right? There's obviously earnings growth. You're not going to have any, any bull market without earnings growth. You know, abundant liquidity tends to be a hallmark of a secular bull market or a cyclical bull market for that matter. But I think we're in a secular bull market that started in 2009. Third one is just interest rates because that feeds directly into the denominator of the discounted cash flow model. And there's other parts as well. You know, how much of earnings are being paid back or returned back to shareholders via dividends and now increasingly via share buybacks. And so the payout ratio in the US, which is around 75%, is a very important driver. And, and that's driven on the margin by, uh, by buybacks. But you know, last year, or really the last two years, was a period where it was nothing but tailwinds for the market. right? And so the S&P from the March 2020 low has gained, I think, 116% to the most recent high on January 4th. Contrast that to the historical CAGR of 11%, right? So 50, 60% per year is not normal. Obviously, it came off of a massive decline. So I'm, I'm not being completely fair here. But you know, we had obviously the liquidity impulse from the fiscal side, the CARES Act, the fiscal stimulus. We had all the, all the liquidity impulse from the Fed through zero rates sharply negative real rates, 120 billion a month of QE. And we had you know, the 10-year trading at 1%, a half a percent, one and a quarter percent. And that feeds directly into the market. You know, I, 
I always um, get <laughs> not annoyed, but people make bold pronouncements about bubble this, uh, and but it's I don't see many people actually quantifying it. But you can actually quantify all of this through the DCF, the discounted cash flow model. That model has a lot of flaws as well because there are so many variables that you can never isolate one thing. But my work suggests that a year ago, six, seven, eight months ago, the 10-year yield was about 100 basis points lower than where it should have been based on the financial repression from the Fed through quantitative easing. That 100 basis points, when you plug that into the DCF, it elevated the PE by six points. That was a 25% inflation, asset price inflation. I wouldn't quite call that a bubble, but clearly asset valuations were inflated by about 25% directly from the Fed. The good news is that a lot of that has reversed. Instead of six points too high, the PE is now two points too high, which is not, you know, not the end of the world. But that liquidity tide has gone back out. Interest rates are are normalizing. They're getting closer to where they should be, which for the 10-year, in my view, is around two, two and a quarter percent. But at the same time, earnings growth is also slowing, right? Earnings grew 48% last year. They are right now expected to grow about 8%. That's using just the, the sell-side consensus estimates. So in 2022, it's really just coming down to just earnings. And it looks like we're going to have mid to high single-digit earnings growth we're not going to have that liquidity buffer. We're not going to have that super low interest rate tailwind. And this is why you're seeing the rotation in the markets, right? Guess what? The meme stocks, which don't necessarily have either earnings or stable earnings, <laughs> um, are not going to make it without earnings growth because yeah. they don't have that liquidity tailwind to, to drive them higher. So you're seeing the markets actually, as much as the market feels like a roller coaster, it's actually very disciplined and very mathematical and very rational. And what you're seeing with this rotation is the rotation from the small cap growers, you know, non-profitable tech, the, the retail favorites, SPACs, IPOs, towards value as rates rise, financials and energy tend to do well. And now I think increasingly we'll see a rotation into quality, consumer staples, utilities. You know, utility stocks are so boring. They have a, a 0.6 beta which doesn't get you very far in a secular bull market, but they have a, a dividend yield north of 3%. They're growing earnings by 6 7%. That's a 10% return right there. And in a market where, you know, as, as you pointed out when, when you were um, highlighting some of my tweets, you know, in a market where you no longer have all of those tailwinds, you're likely to have a wobble, right? Because you have PE multiple compression, which we're already seeing. The PE based on 2022 earnings estimates is already down four points from the high, which is good. It's a good thing. It should be happening because it was artificially inflated uh, you know, earlier. When the PE is compressing and earnings growth is slowing and the Fed is tightening, that's the period when you tend to see wobbles in the market. It's not necessarily the start of a bear market. I don't think we're in a bear market. I think this is a mid-cycle correction. And I think the Fed will look at the yield curve, for instance, and if the yield curve goes inverted, my guess is that the Fed will back off. And I think the Fed, the reason why they're being so hawkish is they're letting the markets do a lot of this stuff for them. So I think this is an environment, and we've seen this in the past. We saw it in 2010. We saw it in 2004, I think. We saw it in 2018. You know, the bull market was intact, but you can't go up 50% per year, especially when some of these tailwinds are turning into headwinds. 
And so this is when you tend to see these kinds of corrections, but it doesn't mean the end of the bull market. I think the bull market remains intact. Really? So you're thinking that we could still make new highs in the equity market right now? Based on my mostly technical work, I think we're in a secular bull market that started in 09. You know, so historically speaking, if you go back to the 1800s, S&P goes up about 10, 11% nominal. It goes up about 6.5% real. Within that very, very long, long history, you tend to see secular bull markets and secular bear markets. And when you look at, for instance, the 80s and 90s, which was a secular bull market, the 50s and 60s, which was another one, what they tend to do, and I recognize that the sample size is very small, but uh, they tend to go up above average for about 18 years by about 18% per year, 14% in real terms. And if you just extrapolate that, those two cycles onto the current one, which in my view started in 2009, we're going to end up, or I shouldn't say that, but we could see an S&P of around 8,000 in the next five years. So I think this bull market is intact. I think demographics has a lot to do with it. Millions and millions of baby boomers retiring, solving for income, not finding it in the bond market, but through the mechanism of this financial engineering in the stock market. So the big growers, big growth stocks, buying back shares, increasing the payout ratio and returning the earnings indirectly, because buybacks are not a direct return of shareholder cash, but indirectly, you're seeing kind of a, a cash yield on the S&P of around 3 4%. And, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's better than the 2% you get in the bond market. And I think that is the fuel for why we're seeing valuations be elevated and why the return profile is elevated. So my sense is that that's the secular backdrop, and I want to play the long game. Right. I mean, uh, obviously, catching the cycles and you know adjusting the amount of exposures you have based on these various tailwinds or headwinds, I think, is important. But that really long wave, um, I think, is really the most important thing, and I think we're we're still in it. For that thesis that you're describing to play out, it would really involve inflation to come back down into a two percent kind of range, or maybe even lower, and be able to hold itself there, not just come down for a two-quarter kind of blowout period. Because like you said earlier, it's all about the discount cash flow calculation, right? And if we're running an inflation at 5% or 4%, these PE ratios cannot sustain themselves at what has been historically for the last 20 years in a very low, well, maybe not 20 years, but since the 2008-2009 crisis to be an extremely low interest rate of, of 1% or 2%. So you really think that they're going to be able to get the the supply chains and things like that under control based on what you're saying, Yuri? It's a great question. My sense is that inflation will come back down, but not to the levels that we were used to you know, prior to the pandemic, right? So the Fed was obviously, as we know, chronically underachieving its inflation target of 2%. That was more around one and a half to 2%. I don't think we're going back to those levels. Uh, I think we might see three, three and a half. But I don't think that is a cycle killer. If we go to five, six, seven, eight percent, totally different story, of course. But I think you know, when you look at, for instance, the 10-year growth rate in the labor force or any demographic indicator, it pretty well explains where interest rates happen and likely are going. And so if we are going more in the direction of Japan, Japan gives us a perfect taste of what might lie ahead. 
then I think inflation and interest rates will stay low, and maybe inflation will be above the level of interest rates, which means we'll see negative real rates, again, which we saw throughout the 1940s for a pretty prolonged period of time, but not to the level where it becomes you know, highly unstable. So I, I do think that inflation is not going to explode or continue to explode higher. I do think it will normalize. But structurally, you look at the labor, the labor markets, you look at you know, real estate prices, those are the two components that I think will, will keep inflation somewhat elevated, maybe by 100 basis points over what it has been. But to me, that's not enough to end the bull market. But as you point out, there's a very clear inverse correlation between the PE ratio on the S&P and the long-term inflation rate. And I tend to use either a five-year Kager or even a two-year just to smooth out those year-over-year base effects. So I think the stock market will survive that. But I think the bigger question is what happens to the stocks to bonds correlation, right? To the 60-40 paradigm, because um, many, 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 probably most investors are in some form of 60-40, because that has been the MO for the markets for the last 20 plus years. And so if inflation does become more structurally elevated, will that cause the 60-40 inverse correlation between the 40, the bond side, and the 60, the equity side, will it cause that to flip? And that, of course, is a big deal because if you're an investor and you're in this diversified balanced portfolio, you need to make sure that that 40, you know, we're, we're not obviously getting a lot of yield out of the 40, right? Where nominal yields are 1.8, real yields are, are negative. So you're not buying bonds uh, because they're such a great value. And we know, of course, mathematically that if you buy a bond, and you hold it to maturity, the yield that you're buying on the bond is your return, right? So yeah. right now, if you buy a 10-year bond at 1.8 and you hold it to maturity, you're getting 1.8% nominal. And if inflation is going to be at three, you're going to get minus 1.2 negative. So you're not buying bonds because they're such a, an attractive bargain, but you know people have been buying bonds uh, and for good reason, because they are a diversifier. They zig when the stock market zags, and generally speaking, that has been the case over the past 20 years. So if that were to change, and that's not a prediction, but if that were to change and inflation would be presumably the force that would make that change, then we need to look elsewhere for real stores of value instead of bonds. So to me, that is the bigger implication for maybe a more structurally higher inflation than what we've seen. Yurian, all I heard was Ray Dalio's risk parity is dead. I'm joking with you. I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm just joking around. Um, I agree with that. I think it's going to have problems moving forward, but that's my personal opinion. Fidelity has a PDF released to their clients in January of 2022, just recently, titled Bitcoin First. In it, it has, I'm going to read two quotes from this, from this document. At the very beginning of the document, it says, Bitcoin is fundamentally different from any other digital asset. No other digital asset is likely to improve upon Bitcoin as a monetary good because Bitcoin is the most, relative to other digital assets, secure, decentralized, sound digital money, and any improvement will necessarily face trade-offs. That's the first quote. Here's the second quote. Other non-Bitcoin projects should be elevated from a different perspective than Bitcoin. This is a fidelity document. This is not something that we're reading off of a blog from a person like me saying these things. I'm blown away. So it appears 
Fidelity really understands Bitcoin and they've understand it for a while. This isn't like a, a new epiphany. So why, how, what's going on within the company for you guys to be publishing things like this? So that paper was published by my colleagues at Fidelity Digital Assets, so FDES, we call them. And you know, they know what they're talking about. You know, we, we were an early mover or an early adopter of Bitcoin and now uh, in general, the the, the blockchain, more generally speaking, but we've been involved in this space for a while. I kind of went down the rabbit hole about a little over a year ago. I, I wrote a, a published a white paper as well, where I likened it to um, a digital form of gold. You know, I mean, it's certainly not not novel. I mean, that's how a lot of people think about this. I think you know the, the points that the paper makes are very well made because you know when you look at the trilemma of the scale and scarcity and security, you have to make trade-offs. If you, if you want to make Bitcoin more scalable, it's going to be maybe not as secure or not as decentralized. And so I think the paper correctly distinguishes Bitcoin from other crypto assets or other digital assets. So Bitcoin is not the same as Ethereum. I think that there is a place for both, but they're not, I wouldn't even count them as the same asset class, right? So to me, what I looked at when I fell down this rabbit hole as I ended up looking at a thousand years of history. And I looked at the, the role that gold has played in the past and the role that Bitcoin can play. And you know, Bitcoin is extremely unique. And I think that you know, the paper um, cites that because you have both this scarcity component, the supply component, you also have this whole network effect. And, and that's why I, when I look at kind of valuation for Bitcoin, you know, most people that I read are looking at price, but they're not looking at valuation. And I think valuation is the most important thing always, right? Because a car can be at a high price or a low price, but what's the value of the car, right? That's the most important thing. And so that's why I combine kind of the, the stock to flow type model with the S-curve model, where I look at historical S-curves, whether it's internet adoption or mobile phone subscribers historically, and I just regress the number of addresses for Bitcoin against those historical S-curves. And Bitcoin is the only asset class that I know of where you have both that supply scarcity and that exponentially growing demand side. Ethereum has one, but it doesn't have the other, although they're certainly trying to, to go in that direction. But I think the, the Ethereum skeptics would say that that may be the direction where they're going into now in terms of managing the supply growth, but that doesn't mean it won't change in the future. And of course, Bitcoin can't be changed. It's immutable. And so that's why that combination of supply scarcity and exponential demand growth or exponential network effects, I don't know of any other asset class that combines those two. So I, I think it's a point that they make that is very valid. One of the complaints that you hear from a lot of people that are skeptical of the stock to flow model is that they say that it's just supply. There's no accounting for demand there. When I first saw you start posting about this and, and putting them on the same chart, which was the stock to flow, and then you mentioned the S-curve was your demand model, I was just like, oh, I love this because it kind of addresses that counterpoint that you often hear when people are talking about stock to flow. What variable are you using for this S-curve? Are you using just wallet addresses or some type of hash piece? Like, What is it that you're looking at in order to model that S-curve out? To your first point, so the stock to flow model, I think, has been obviously, at least until recently, very accurate in, in explaining the price of Bitcoin. But I think over the long run, especially as the stock to flow model just keeps pointing you know, 
exponentially to higher prices, it left me unsatisfied because there has to be more than just supply scarcity, right? If, if there's not a demand for something, it doesn't matter how scarce it is, it's not going to have a value, right? So I think that the demand side of the equation is, I think, by far the most important one. And I look at just the, the number of addresses with a value greater than zero, or you can use the value greater than $1 just to make sure you don't have duplications. And I think um, with a value greater than a dollar, the number of addresses right now is about 40 million, and it continues to grow to new highs. And the math exercise actually is relatively simple, right? So I just I looked at mobile phone subscriptions historically, and I looked at internet adoption historically, and I just regressed those two curves to the last 11, 12 years worth of, of demand for Bitcoin through the number of addresses. That spits out a formula, and then you can extrapolate, and that's always a dangerous thing to do, of course. But if you assume that the S-curve is how this works, um, and that's how Bitcoin will continue to grow, what you get is this exponentially growing curve that becomes more asymptotic over time. And it departs from the stock to flow, because the stock to flow on a log scale just keeps going up in a straight line, whereas the demand curve you know, becomes more asymptotic. So I've been quoted as saying Bitcoin could see 100,000 in the next two years. And, and that number just comes from the intersection of those two models, because that's the last time that the supply model and the demand model meet. And from that point on, the demand model goes up. It still goes up at a lesser pace. And at that point, the, those two lines uh, start to diverge for, for good. That's really all it is. It's, um, but there are a lot of examples of this, right? I, I've compared the whole network effect for Bitcoin to Apple computers network effect, right? So as Apple grows its revenues, its stock price goes up exponentially from that. It doesn't go up in line. And, and this, is, this is Metcalf's law, of course. Bitcoin is following in the same path. Um, and so I think there's some very robust logic to why Bitcoin should see higher values as the demand curve evolves. And you know, maybe other digital assets will do better because they, they are more scalable, but that, that's, at the same time, maybe they're less decentralized. And that's why I would see, and I think my colleagues at FDAS probably agree, that to me, Bitcoin is, a, is an asset class, like a, a store of value, like gold. And the rest of the digital asset space is more almost like a venture asset. I put the rest of the, of the digital asset space in the venture side of an equity portfolio, you know, like venture capital. And, but I would put Bitcoin on the bond side of a portfolio because to me, that's where you have a real store of value in an era of negative real rates and financial repression. So they have similar volatility and all that stuff, but I would put them in opposite sides of a portfolio. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. 
Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, it's Clay Fink here, host of We Study Billionaires. Want to hear one of my favorite sounds? Here it is. That's the sound I hear when I'm learning a new language with Babbel. And if you want to learn a new language this year, I guarantee it'll be one of your favorite sounds too. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that actually works. Their quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. I love Babbel because it makes it so easy for me to speak Spanish while ordering food, asking for directions, or just having basic conversations without needing the help of my phone. It's no wonder that Babbel has sold over 16 million subscriptions and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash WSB. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash W-S-B. Rules and restrictions may apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. We had a lot of questions online for you wanting to get into a lot of the regulatory stuff. And we're going to pass over that just because of some of the restrictions you have working for Fidelity. And I just want to put that out there so people know that we're not purposely <laughs> avoiding the questions. There's just some restrictions that uh, Urian can get into it. So we're going to skip over that. Turta Maester had a really interesting question here. He said, have there been any surprising market behavioral differences in Bitcoin as an asset class versus other asset classes that you've studied throughout your career? Well, certainly Bitcoin is probably more volatile 
It's interesting, right? So the, the sharp ratio for Bitcoin, which is the annualized return over the annualized volatility over the past 10, 11, 12 years, is actually the same as a 60-40 index. Not many people know this, but you know, if something goes up 260% and has a volatility of 80, you're kind of getting to the same place, but in, in a lot more of a nonlinear way. And I think part of that, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of, of that volatility as, as a bug in the system and that it will smooth out over time as Bitcoin uh, comes of age, right? I, I liken Bitcoin as a teenager. A teenager has great potential, but they can, also, they can also wreck your car, right? So it's like, there's kind of a binary side to that. But I think of Bitcoin as where gold was in the 1970s, right? The gold was, it went from being money to being an asset class. And it went through price discovery. It was a teenager. It was coming of age. It was very volatile. It went up a lot, but it had huge, huge drawdowns as well. Bitcoin is doing the same thing, but it's a little bit different because gold, of course, is a scarce commodity. That's why uh, you know, it's a store of value. But there, there can be some supply response in gold if demand is very high. Not a lot because you have to mine it and then all that stuff. But you know, for Bitcoin, that supply response is even harder to achieve because of the pre-programmed slowdown in future growth. So the volatility, I think, in part is because a lot of people pile in, right? We know about the hodlers, but I also like to talk about the tourists that just come in and they're buying it because it goes up and then they, they, they puke it out when it goes down. And so you have that very speculative aspect of it. But the other part is that you don't have the supply response if demand goes up. So therefore, that increase or decrease in demand is completely translated into price movements, right? So it's a kind of a price inelasticity, if you will. And that's a very unique property. And so I think it's actually more of a feature than a bug. And it's not something that will go away. I think the Sharpe ratio probably stays the same. And both the numerator and the denominator go down as there's more adoption over time. But I do think the volatility is something that will stay around. I like this question. When will retail be able to buy Bitcoin in custody through their Fidelity account? I don't know. But I know <laughs> that um, obviously we were disappointed that there's not an ETF, a physically backed ETF coming, at least in the near, the near term. We do think the market is, is ready for that. I think the, the asset class is mature enough at this point that, that it can happen and, and maybe it will. You know, at Fidelity Digital Assets, we do offer you know, custody and all that stuff for accredited investors. At what point it ends up in model portfolios, I couldn't tell you. But you know, it's an asset class that's coming of age and it will become more mature over time. And so I, I think that's just something that we'll have to wait for. Is Fidelity uh, digging into Lightning at all? I don't know the direct answer, but certainly the L2 side of overcoming the lack of scalability um, is certainly an important part of the whole conversation about Bitcoin and how it can be made more, more scalable, which of course is what other digital assets are already achieving. So I think it's an important part of the conversation. When I looked at the, uh, this volcano bond that they're doing down in El Salvador, I found this to be just such a unique security in that half of it is going to be paid as a special coupon. And I think by setting this up, this structure up, you've opened up this market to the fixed income space and not necessarily El Salvador specifically, but something that could be 
templated and used in other parts of the world that nobody, I don't think, has ever kind of thought of a vehicle structure like this and how you got all this pent-up capital and fixed income that's earning a pittance in yield, in my personal, I mean, negative yields, deep negative yields that are chartered for only investing in the fixed income space. And now you have this really unique idea where half of the amount that's raised is immediately converted into Bitcoin. It's custodied by that entity. And then at a five-year period later, it's just paid out as a special coupon to these fixed income investors. They now have direct access not 100% performance, but half the performance right there built in, and they're still within their charter constraints. Is this something that you think is going to be templated into other parts of the world outside of El Salvador? You can extract El Salvador out of this completely and just kind of looking at the, the vehicle type that's being used here. It's certainly super fascinating, right? And it, you know, it becomes a question of, will a bondholder be able to you know, stomach the volatility that might come from bonds like that. And, you know, it's a conversation that I think a lot of corporates are, are having as well. You know, I remember a, a year ago when, when I had published, you know, my white paper, I had many, many meetings with uh, corporate pension plans, CIOs, even some treasurers of, you know, Fortune 50 companies, and they were all super interested. They want to get involved, but the volatility is something that I think has kept a lot of a lot of investors away from the space. I mean, there's other, other reasons as well. It'll be an important test case to see how these bonds do. And, and I think, um, you know, obviously, El Salvador is right there at the beginning of it. And as other countries presumably adopt a similar structure, and we continue to live in this period of negative real rates, solving that, that problem in the bond market, I think, is, is a very worthwhile thing to do, whether it's exactly in this structure or not. Who knows? Someone has to go first and try it, and then we'll see how it goes. But there's a lot of money tied up in the bond market earning a negative real return. And so any, any ways to overcome that, either by going into another asset class, which to your point, not everyone can do, right? As investors often have to stay in their charter. That's why European uh, institutions buy bonds with a negative yield in Europe because they're mandated to do so by the central bank. So being able to play around with the parameters within that asset class, I think, is something that's, that's very innovative and be interesting to see how it all plays out. And this is my last question for you, Yurin. The conversations that you're having with some of these players, I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars at the disposal of each one of the entities. How has that progressed? Are, are they much more open to Bitcoin today than they were a year ago, than they were two years ago? Is this a linear interest or is this kind of an exponential interest? From your point of view, how would you describe that? I would say you know, a year ago, as Bitcoin was ratcheting up very rapidly and you know, we published that white paper, I mean, I was having meetings every day with, you know, again, CIOs of humongous companies uh, in the US. And a lot of it was you know, just curiosity, and especially as a fidelity weighing in on the space with a hopefully objective, well-thought-out approach, I think that there was a lot of demand for that. But the, the caveats always generally were, you know, it's, it's too volatile, and it still is. And part of the, I don't want to call it FOMO, but with Bitcoin not having really gone up 
over the past year and you know in correction mode as we speak there's not as much of an urgency i think to say oh my you know we we got to be in this or we're going to lose out and i think part of it also is the the regulatory side you know my colleagues at fdas i think don't want to speak for them but i think they would agree with me that some regulation actually is good or would be good because it will legitimize the space and i think a lot of that will come actually from the stablecoin side as well which is also a critical component and so a lot of big institutions are probably still waiting for those things to play out because we don't really have a lot of new clarity on the on the regulation side the volatility is still there and i think with bitcoin not at this point at least going you know exponentially higher maybe institutions have a sense that okay we don't have to do this right now because you know if you're a cio uh, of a major corporate pension plan you need to answer to your board uh if you buy something that maybe you were earlier than you should have been and then it's down 50% and then you have to explain that so i think generally speaking i think institutions would rather be a little late and have a little bit more of, of not certainty but a, a sense of that they know where it's going and i think you know i think the stablecoin aspect of that is is a very important part and of course the fed just released a paper on you know on stablecoins and on uh, central bank digital currency i do think that that's moving in the right direction and probably stablecoins will be will become regulated as they probably should be so that there at least is there there is that sense of security that if you own stablecoins um that you know what what they're actually worth so i think we're heading in the right direction i'm sure the adoption is higher than where it was a, a year ago because you know i was kind of in those early conversations but i don't know where 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 things go you know after that but i think on the volatility side on the regulatory side we don't have total clarity yet and i maybe we won't for a long time maybe the volatility angle will, will never really be resolved uh, because as i mentioned earlier it's probably more of a feature than than a bug to the system so urian i just want to tell folks if you're not following urian on twitter you need to do that now i'm going to have a link to his twitter account in the show notes you are going to be hard pressed to find better charts than these charts that he's he's putting out Yurian, is there anything else that you want to highlight or point people towards? I would just say, you know, think about all these things hard before you get involved. You know, like I have people still walking up to me or friends that, you know, should I buy Bitcoin? And I say, well, you need to probably put 100 hours worth of of work in it because otherwise you're never going to hodl Bitcoin when it goes down. And so only then will you have the conviction and the same thing is probably true for for the traditional asset markets you know understand what what drives markets earnings liquidity interest rates and take a balanced approach and you know what i always tell people um which is more for long term investors which may or may not be your audience but having a plan and then just executing on that plan are the two most important things right so having a portfolio whether it includes bitcoin or not that is right for you that you're buying these assets for the right reason because your time horizon your risk appetite your goals your financial needs and then the hardest part is when you do see a drawdown which we're seeing in recent uh, weeks only then do you have the conviction to really stick with it and sticking with it is often the difference between you know making a decent return and not love that absolutely love that so, like I said, I'm going to have some links there in the show notes. Urian, thank you so much for making time and coming on the show. I am just thrilled to be able to to have this chat with you. I could talk to you all night about this stuff. So, 
Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.